Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange. My name is Scott Sorrell, Director of Global Marketing for Balchem. Uh, today, we're coming to you from the uh, American Dairy Science Association meetings here in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. It's a warm day out there, a beautiful June day. Um, our first guest today is Turner Schwartz from Michigan State University. Turner, I understand your advisor is uh, Barry Bradford. He's not able to join you today? Uh, no, he's not. Okay, he's, he's working real hard. Um, I understand you did a poster titled Effects of Dietary Rumen Protected Choline Supplementation During Late Gestation on Calf Growth and Metabolism. Think you could have made that any longer? Mm, so. Probably a little bit. <laughs> so, anyway, can you tell us just a little bit about uh, the poster? Um, have you presented that yet? Yeah, it, it's out here today. Okay, great. Uh, so, tell us about the genesis of that, uh, the research. Yeah, so we actually came up with that idea of looking at prenatal choline supplementation because some of the work that Marcos did at the University of Florida that saw some really profound effects on reducing mortality and improving health in those calves. So we were following up on that study, trying to figure out why, why those calves were so much healthier, why they were growing better. Uh, and we were doing some uh, probably more mechanistic work, I guess, looking at improvements in oxidative stress, inflammation, changes in metabolism. Okay, great. Now, do you have a lot of, uh, do you have a big audience for the poster today? Uh, we actually, I, I try to give my undergrads as much opportunity. So we had an oh. undergrad presenting it today. Okay. With me, my co-host today, at least on this section, is uh, Dr. Marco Sinobi, uh, formerly from the University of Florida, now with Balchem Corporation. And uh, Marcos, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you working at today? Thank you, Scott. Um, I originally from Argentina. Okay, I did my PhD at Florida, as you said, and today I do technical services for Balkan on the Spanish market, like Mexico, Chile, Peru, Argentina. So. Great, great. You're doing a nice job down there too, Marcos. Thank you. Listen, I'm going to let you guys have a conversation about the results of the research. I'll let the PhDs talk here. Okay. <laughs> so, Turner, can you uh, summarize or share the, the main results from your trial, please? From the calf trial? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, in the calf trial, the, the calves that were born from the choline supplement and dam, supplemented dams, in general, we saw reductions in oxidative stress markers and reductions in haptoglobin, which is an acute phase protein associated with inflammation. Uh, some of those effects were dose-dependent or sex-dependent because we had both bull and heifer calves. But in general, we saw markers that were reducing inflammation or reducing oxidative stress. Uh, in addition to that, we saw some kind of neat interactions with uh, the dam's metabolism. So we, I think we did a nice job kind of undercovering, uncovering the ability of the dam's metabolism to influence the calf's metabolism and how choline can modulate that response. So we saw some changes in NEFA concentrations um, associated with choline supplementation in those calves. Okay, so can you explain a little bit more about the interaction that you saw between the dams and yeah. the calf? Yeah, well, in just about everything that we measured, we saw an association of the dam's metabolic parameters with the calves, which was kind of surprising. I wasn't expecting to see that such so profoundly. Um, with the interaction that we saw with choline, we saw that as the dam's NEFA increased, the calf's NEFA also increased, and that choline was abrogating that relationship. So choline was modulating or kind of moderating that response, so the NEFA concentrations were 
uh, less if the dam's NEFA was extremely high, or not extremely high, but higher. Yeah. That's nice. So there is some information out there that basically is telling us that 50% of the cows, usually during the close-up, will lose some condition, some body condition score. So this data has some implication, I guess, for farmers, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Because if those cows are losing body condition, that's going to impact the calf's metabolism, most likely. No. Um, and, and if choline can help modulate that response or improve those calves' metabolism, maybe they will grow better uh, in the pre-weaning period. Well, Turner, do you have a hypothesis for what that mode of action is? Uh, not really. I mean, it's probably related to methylation um, because we're looking at prenatal treatments. Okay. So we're looking probably at methylation of DNA, changing gene expression, which is altering the metabolism. Uh, I definitely think looking into the liver of those cows probably is worth looking at. Okay. And how profound were the differences? Uh, some of them were more profound than others. Um, they, we didn't actually see a response in growth, which we would have liked to have seen, but I wish we would have measured growth for a much longer time period. So one of the things, we measured all of our responses for the first 21 days, and I think when you do these types of studies, kind of in hindsight, we should have gone through at least the weaning mm -hmm. period, and we probably would have been able to pull out more response. Yeah. But. The good thing that you are adding more evidence to the effect of calling in yeah. on, the, on the calf performance, right? Yeah. So that's pretty so, nice. Yeah, we're definitely supplementing some of the work that you did at Florida. Yeah. So maybe it's, it's related, but it's not in the abstract. Maybe we can ask, but you also have some good effects on the colostrum, right? Because these dams were supplemented with choline during the close-up period. Yeah. And then you have some data, pretty cool data about colostrum. Can yeah. you share that with us? Sure. Uh, so the cows that received choline uh, produced about 80% more colostrum than the control cows. So we saw a huge increase, a really profound increase in colostrum yield. We did not see any effects on IgG content. So the cows were producing more colostrum, but not negatively affecting the IgG content. So usually when we see a huge increase in volume, we get a little bit concerned that we might dilute out those IgGs, but we didn't see that. So we saw a nice substantial increase in colostrum yield. Okay. Yeah, kind of same question before, Turner. What would the mode of action of that be? <laughs> uh, it could be a number of things, um, anything from methylation. Maybe we're increasing the number of mammary epithelial cells that are secreting more colostrum. Uh, maybe we're reducing apoptosis in the mammary gland. And, and so now we have more cells producing more colostrum. Um, it could be the activity of the cells. Maybe we're enhancing their activity so they're producing more colostrum there. It could be a methylation. It could be related to the choline metabolites. Mm -hmm. You know, So there's a, a lot of different avenues. And, a lot of things for you guys to figure out. <laughs> yeah, let me guess, more research needed, yeah. right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, with that in mind, what do you see the next steps in this line of research? Uh, with the calves? Yes. Um, I think you should look at long-term responses. You know, if we know choline can modulate metabolism in those calves, what is it doing in those cows when they reach adulthood? Okay. First, second, third lactation. Maybe you're improving metabolic adaptations to lactation even that long-term. Um, so I think that's an area I would look at. I know that there's some research that shows that prenatal choline can increase milk yield in those first lactation animals. And, and so following up on why that's occurring, I think would be useful. Okay. Do you think we know enough yet today that uh, we, we can um, 
determine some uh, practical implications or still we need to determine, do, do some more research? <laughs> Always more research. Yes. Um, with the with the calf stuff, I think you're, you're seeing improvements in health. I think your study at Florida was really profound. Uh, certainly, I think prenatal choline can help improve health in those herds that are really struggling with calf foot diseases. I think that's a practical application. Uh, Long-term responses and more investigation is probably need to get, dig into that further, but I, I think there's a lot of promise there. Yeah, super. Turner, I want to thank you for joining us today. I uh, got a chance to meet you yesterday, listen to your presentation. Uh, you're a very impressive young man, very bright. Uh, the, uh, the industry's in good hands. Can you tell us what your future plans are going to be? Uh, sure. Right now, I am applying for faculty positions. Okay. Um, so I'm finishing up my postdoc with Dr. Barry Bradford. I'm applying for faculty positions, and hopefully I'll be able to secure one. Yeah, super. super. Excellent. Thank you. Turner and Marcos, want to thank you for joining us here today. Um, for those out there who would like to read the poster, we're going to put the, the link in the show notes. So once again, thank you guys for joining us today. Thank, thank you. you so much, Scott. Thank you, Turner. Hello everyone and welcome to the American Dairy Science Association. Today we are featuring several students that have been giving posters and uh, oral presentations here at the ADSA and we're going to be featuring 20 of them this week and so right now we have with us uh, is Tanya France from Cornell University. Welcome Tanya to the Real Science Exchange. Hi, thank you for having me today. Oh you're very welcome. So you did an oral presentation, have you done that yet? Was um, I have not done that okay, yet. Okay, so it's tomorrow. scheduled tomorrow. All right, yeah. very well. The title, that's called Changes in Plasma and Milk Choline Metabolite Concentrations in Response to the Provision of Various Room Protected Choline Prototypes in Lactating Cows. So tell me a little bit about that research, or maybe it should first, uh, would you like to introduce your, uh, your professor here? Yeah, this is Dr. McFadden um, from Cornell. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, so I've been working with Tanya now for two years. Uh, she just passed her uh, candidacy for her PhD program, so we're super excited about that. And uh, this project was one of many that uh, I think Tanya has taken on in her PhD program. We focused on the effects of uh, rumen-protected choline on the choline and choline metabolite response in plasma and milk. You know, the overarching goal here is to define, uh, you know, the best rumen-protected choline technologies that uh, really enhance choline bioavailability, and, and that's really difficult to do because it's not just about choline, it's about how choline is metabolized, and so her study really uh, tried to answer that question by really tracking sort of choline utilization uh, in the cow. Right, yeah. So, you know, um, Balchem, uh, we're the world's largest manufacturer of choline, and one of the challenges we've had is that we're not able to um, measure the bioavailability. Uh, we, we, we create uh, rumen-protected cholines, and it's been very difficult. And so this is a, a key part, this research, kind of some of the similar research to try to help us understand that, correct? Yeah, I mean, yeah. bioavailability is a tough thing to measure, um, especially in the cow, uh, especially with rumen-protected technologies. Um, so, you know, we got to get to a point, though, where we better understand uh, the amount of choline that is digestible, metabolizable, and bioavailable. And there's a lot, a lot of reliance in, on in vitro approaches to do that, and there's a lot of limitations with those approaches. I'm not saying our approach, in which I'll let Tanya talk, um, uh, Tanya talk about, but there, it's not the best. I mean, there, there are limitations to every approach is what I'm trying to say. And, um, but we need to better understand sort of the biological response. And so to do that, you have to actually use the cow to do it. Yeah, yeah, very well. 
Tanya, why don't you tell us a little bit about research and how you went about setting up the, the protocol? Um, yeah, so for we ended up doing two different experiments for this study. So the first one was with um, 12 mid-lactation dairy cows, and um, we had an unreplicated Latin square design with um, three main plots, which was prototypes one, two, and three, which were um, rumen-protected products from Balchem. And um, within, each pro which, within each of those main plots, we had um, one of four doses. So we um, had a zero or a control, and then um, 1836 and 54 grams of choline chloride. Um, and basically, we gave these as um, a ruminal bolus to the cow and measured um, plasma and milk over the course of about 36 hours um, and seen if there was a linear dose effect of the products. Um, and we, we did want to look at um, a couple different metabolites that haven't really been measured in dairy cows before. In your experiment, you used mid-lactation and late-lactation cows, uh, but you know we typically feed rumen-protected choline to transition cows, so can you explain a little bit about why you chose those stages of lactation in your experiment? We really chose to do that because um, the responses to rumen-protected choline in a transition cow, those um, plasma metabolites or milk metabolites, um, going to be highly variable and nutrients are really going to be partitioned or we would think partitioned towards the mammary gland so to kind of remove those um, variables or make it less variable we chose to do mid and late lactation cows and for the purpose of the study um, it being more of a bioavailability study it seemed um, like a better option to use mid and late lactation cows granted we weren't we were not comparing um, the two since they were two completely different studies, but um, yeah. My co-host for today's session is Carrie Estes. Carrie, this is your first time to the Real Science Exchange. It Appreciate is. Appreciate you joining Thank us you. today. Thank uh, you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your role here at Balchem. So I'm a research associate with Balchem and I've been working with Balchem for five years now. So Very well. Do you have any questions for us today? Yeah, so Scott already jumped the gun on some of my questions, so thanks. But um, uh, I wanted to ask about rumen-protected methionine, right? There's a lot of talk about that, methionine versus choline. So did you supplement with rumen-protected methionine in this experiment? Um, we did not supplement with rumen-protected methionine. So um, the diets were considered deficient in methionine. Um, and the purpose of doing that was we, again, didn't want these variables um, influencing the effects of um, choline being uh, utilized by the cow. So um, really, honestly, for that purpose, we chose to have a deficient diet. We wanted the cow to be able to utilize choline as it would normally without kind of um, competing with methionine, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, that makes sense. Yeah. And I'll just add to that and say that, you know, if we were to do a study like that where you were to compare rumen-protected choline versus rumen-protected methionine on sort of methyl donors and, and choline utilization, you know, there's some overlap there and that methionine cycle helps contribute to sort of endogenous choline synthesis as a phospholipid, as phosphatidylcholine. But there's things that choline does that are very unique that methionine really can't contribute to. And so um, there's probably merit to studying those things simultaneously, but that's something just we didn't do. You had mentioned before, Joe, that um, there are challenges with some of the in vitro uh, methodologies that people are using, and even said that yours is not perfect. Um, so 
What do you see the future for uh, developing and understanding uh, this kind of a technique that you're using? Where do you see it going in the future? What kind of research is going to be required to get it to the point where we can have a reliable uh, way to test and uh, measure choline availability, bioavailability, whatever you want to yeah, call it? Yeah, I'd first start with more in vitro, in vivo studies, excuse me, that, that look at digestible choline. So we're sort of looking at uh, sort of fecal choline output in response to these products in relationship to how much they're fed and that will give us at least one good understanding of what's being digestible but then we better need to understand what's going on post-roomly as well. I mean one of the things that Tanya was showing in, in this particular study was an increase in the metabolite called trimethylamine oxide or TMAO and that is actually um, a product of choline degradation that happens in the rumen and it happens in the intestine and we really don't understand yet um, what um, how much sort of what the extent of that choline degradation of TMAO is um, and but if we can try to quantify that we might have a an in vivo tool in the future to be able to assess sort of choline degradation in vivo and I think that's gonna be a powerful tool because then you could potentially just use a milk sample or urine sample uh, and then that would be great for product comparison um, kind of experiments, um, but also figuring out dietary approaches to enhance choline bioavailability by reducing degradation of choline. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that a lot of people in the marketplace believe that all cholines are the same, rumen-protected cholines. Um, have you had the opportunity to take a look at different ones, and, and are there, in fact, differences? Yeah, I could say that, um, you know, across a variety of products, you're going to have different amounts of rumen protection, you're probably going to have different extents of intestinal release, and you're going to have a different degree of bioavailability. Um, and I would say that, based on sort of my observations, that that's a wide range. There's a lot of differences. Um, and so I would love to see the literature be more transparent in terms of um, uh, what is uh, digestible, and I think we need more data, that we need more science behind that. Um, and I know there's a lot of push to sort of recommend choline feeding on on a grams per day of, of as fed, but I'd like to see that field move forward to towards a digestible and metabolizable choline basis. That would be really, really great uh, for the future of the field. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Tanya, do you have any plans for, for choline bioavailability research? Are you moving on to the next thing? Uh, am I allowed to uh, yeah, I say we're doing things. <laughs> I mean, this is the you, you're, you're you know presenting this to the world, okay, Scott. So we got to be like, protect the world and things. beyond. Okay, yeah. so yeah, I mean we're working on that. Uh, there's there's things out there. There there are technological approaches that we could use to better understand choline utilization, and and those are things that we're doing. That's that's a very political answer, politically yeah. correct answer. Right. Yeah, great, yeah. great. <laughs> so why don't we, Tanya, talk a little bit about your future specifically? Um, understand that you're you've graduated or will soon graduate and yeah so I'll be hopefully graduating in May of next year um, and I'm hopefully going to be starting a postdoc after that um, with the goal of going into academia potentially following a postdoc so uh, we will see very That's good <laughs> very good well, the future's bright for the ag industry. Uh, bright minds like yourself, we want to thank you for coming today, joining us here at the Real Science Exchange. Joe, this is yeah. at least your second trip here. Yeah. Thank you. It's great to see you again. I think again. I was part of the first one. I think you were. Yeah, I Absolutely. remember that one. That was a fun one. <laughs> that was a fun one. All right. Thanks, folks. We'll thank see you next thank time. You. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone, to the American Dairy Science Association taking place here in downtown Kansas City, Missouri. 
We're here and interviewing today uh, Usman Arshad. Uh, Usman, we met yesterday, uh, saw your presentation. You're a very accomplished young man, very impressive. Um, I understand you just got done completing your oral presentation here at the ADSA. How'd that go? It went very well, actually, yeah. because people recognized that this was the novel work, which has been done first time to show that how choline can uh, alleviate the risk of fatty liver and dairy cows. So I was excited, a lot excited. Yeah. It went very well. Yeah, very good. So the, the title of your presentation was Rumen-Protected Choline Reduces Hepatic Triglycerol uh, Content by Increasing Hepatic Triglyceride-Rich Lipoprotein Secretion. So how'd you come up with the idea for this research? Was this your idea or uh, Dr. Santos? Well, uh, back in 90s and early 2000, uh, Dr. Grummer and other colleagues, they uh, proposed a hypothesis that uh, a rumen-protected choline uh, might be enhancing the export of triacylglycerol from the hepatic tissue. So that's how choline can uh, reduce the risk of fatty liver in cows. But no one has actually proved this concept. So uh, we knew uh, what's going on, but we just needed to prove this. So in this particular experiment, we actually proved this concept. Okay, in just general terms, how would you explain the, the, the protocol? How'd you go about proving this? So, well, uh, we all know that it's uh, pretty much well known now, like choline, it enhances the synthesis of phosphatidylcholine, which is a major phospholipid. So we thought probably choline, if enhanced the uh, phospholipids part, it can enhance the VLDL particles, like lipoprotein particles. And the good thing of very low density lipoprotein particle is it packages triacylglycerol into its core component. So you can say easily that 50 to 60% of the composition of that lipoprotein particle is mainly composed of triacylglycerol. Now, if choline can enhance the synthesis of this lipoprotein particle, and we know that this particle contains majority of triacylglycerol. So the triacylglycerol, which is deposited in the hepatic tissue, it can be packaged inside that particle, which can come out of the hepatic tissue. So that's how you can reduce the deposition of triacylglycerol in hepatic tissue and ex export it out the blood. Oh, very interesting. So, my co-host joining me today is Dr. Ryan Ordway. Uh, Ryan, tell us a little bit about yourself and what do you do for oh. Balcam? Thanks, Scott. I appreciate you having me here as part of the podcast. This is your first time, my, hopefully not your last. My first podcast ever. So, yes. Yeah. Um, I've been with uh, Balcam uh, for 13 years and held various roles within the company. Uh, technical, started in technical, and now I'm the global director of strategic accounts. And so do a lot with uh, research, product development. Um, Very well. Business side of things anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Glad to have you here. Um, I'll just hand it off to you if you got any questions yeah. for this mine. I do. So this is uh, this is really interesting research um, that you've been doing. And I think, you know, for uh, I, I hate to say I've been in the in the industry now for a while, but I've been in the industry for a while. And, you know, this is a this research is really an evolution, I think, from my standpoint of, you know, where we've been, where sort of feed them, weigh them type research where we have, you know, feed something like choline look for a response you know usually in feed intake or milk production or whatever and um you know now we're actually with the technology we have looking at expression of genes and it's you know sort of to me the next generation of 
research next generation of science and unlocking what what is going on um, actually within the animal you know biologically not just what we see on the outside being body condition score or, or uh, production or whatever so tell me a little bit about you know sort of the genesis behind looking at genes and and you you know saw all kinds of different expression of of the of genes with you know in response to feeding choline anything that really stood out to you and uh any key findings um that that the audience would be interested in learning yeah so uh i think i guess uh, mrna expression or in other words gene expression it tells you a snapshot what's actually going on at the cell level like as you said we can see if the cow is producing more milk or not if she's losing weight or not or if she's gaining weight by comparing body condition score or by comparing milk yield of two cows that's pretty much evident but what's actually happening inside the tissue and inside the cell so this when you do the mrna expression it gives you the uh, ideas that how your treatment is affecting at a cellular level which is a very small less unit in the body so well in our experiment when we supplemented choline so we had a lot of genes which were upregulated meaning the message to synthesize proteins for some particular uh, molecules was 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 a lot so for example so like i said before if you want to reduce the risk of fatty liver which is certainly not good for the health of cows and productivity of the cows. If you want to reduce the risk of that fatty liver, you have to remove that fat out of the liver. And one way to do that is to export that fat out of the liver. How you can do that to enhance the synthesis of lipoproteins. Now, there is a procedure in the body to synthesize that lipoprotein, which is not a single step process. It involves three or four steps. You need to have enough phospholipids there enough proteins there and triacylglycerol. Now, if you feed choline, the message went to the cells that's, that led to synthesis more of those proteins which were able to package that triacylglycerol into the uh, VLDL particle. And one of the genes is MTTP, microsomal tri transfer triglyceride protein. So what this protein does, it actually takes the triacylglycerol, which is accumulated in the hepatic tissue, and which is not good to stay there. So it's gonna take that with, with itself, and it's gonna package to lipoprotein, and it's gonna keep doing that. And the other genes, like ApoB48, it's a protein which is required for the assembly of that VLDL particle. So the more expression of these genes would be there, there would be more protein synthesis, that's gonna increase the synthesis and assembly of those lipoproteins, which are gonna export this triacylglycerol out of the hepatic tissue. So that's how choline can enhance the, uh, uh, sorry, choline can reduce the incidence of fatty liver in cows. It's pretty interesting, Scott, this is my uh, bus discussion. So Usman was able to demonstrate we were able to make more choline buses. Yeah, to, uh... yeah this goes back to a PowerPoint presentation Ryan had showed me the other day and uh, it was kind of like uh, choline for dummies. That's what yeah. he was using the bus concept because he was talking to me about that. Anyway, sorry about that. So one of the, I, I think, interesting concepts behind this type of research is it not only is showing the effects of choline, but I think gives us the opportunity to look at how choline is interacting with other nutrients as well. Mm -hmm. um, can you elaborate a little bit on, on 
what this is unlocking in terms of from a science standpoint, uh, how we can see it uh, more as a holistic approach? Yeah, so choline basically it's a methyl donor, right? And there are also other methyl donors which are available, uh, such as methionine, lumen protected methionine, or betaine. And uh, we have seen in the literature that uh, choline truly acts as a lipotropic agent. Let me give you an example. So, so far, if I remember correctly, there are six or seven trials where people were trying to see if whether rumen protected methionine can reduce the risk of fatty liver. And, well, they were unable to detect the effect. So it means that uh, rumen protected choline, uh, sorry, rumen protected methionine, it might have effect on the production components. It can enhance the milk protein synthesis or milk production. But for the hepatic tissue, choline should be fed to the cows. Like in our experiment, we maintained uh, uh, the required amount of metabolizable methionine so that we can isolate the effect of choline. So all the cows had same level of methionine, but the cows who were supplemented with choline, they had less infiltration of triacylglycerol in the hepatic tissue. So this means that choline is a is a lipotropic agent, and it should also be fed along with other methyl donors such as rumen protected methionine. So really, looking uh, basically saying the biology is working in concert uh, with other other compounds, not yes. not one one nutrient or bioactive working by itself and doing its own thing, but everything impacting uh, as a whole. Exactly, because uh, uh, choline, methionine, betaine, they all participate in one carbon metabolism. So choline can be transferred to methionine and methionine can, can play its roles on the production components. Uh, but for the hepatic tissue, uh, I think choline is more necessary in terms of uh, uh, balance feeding rations. Yeah, Usman, as we kind of kind of wrap things up here, can you kind of put a bow on the conversation and what are some of the key uh, one or two takeaways for the audience today from this uh, research? So, well, uh, uh, I have been in research from last four years, so it's not only one experiment. We also conducted a meta-analysis where we uh, included all the studies which have been done from in last 20 years to see what choline does to the uh, productive performance and the health of cows and Interestingly, uh, uh, if you supplement 12.9 grams of choline ion during transition period, it enhanced milk production almost two kilograms per day and uh, concurrent with the reduced health events such as mastitis or retained placenta. And uh, now with this experiment where we actually induced fatty liver in cows and then we supplemented them with uh, choline, so we were able to detect lower incidence of fatty liver. So if you have less fatty liver, the cows would be in greater health. They would be producing more milk and that would be beneficial for the uh, economics of the dairy herd. Okay, now I understand your uh, collegiate career is coming to an end. You're uh, graduating soon and uh, will be going back home to Pakistan. So what research is left to be done and who's gonna carry on that research uh, in your absence? Well, uh, I would say a lot of things that could be done with, uh, with, with this research. So for example, the, the findings of our experiment, they suggest that choline enhances the uh, lipoprotein synthesis. But we do not know if there was more lipoprotein particles or if the size of the lipoprotein particle was more. In other way, if the choline supplemented cows were able to package more triglyceride in one lipoprotein particle 
or if the particle size itself was bigger enough to have more triglycerides. So that could be one of the component that could be looked into that. And another one, a finding which comes into a meta-analysis, the availability of literature on the effects of choline on reproduction. We have seen a plenty of literature suggesting that choline enhances the embryo development, it can enhance the fertility, but really there are not very much experiments available where we can enroll, let's say, 500 cows, 700 cows, one group receives choline, one group receives no treatment, and then we can see if it can enhance the fertility of the cows or not. So if we can hit that area as well, it would be good for the farmers and producers as well. All right. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this afternoon here at the ADSA and uh, look forward to uh, staying in touch with you down the road. Thank you. Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk reduced metabolic disorders, and even in-utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more. And we're back here at the uh, American Dairy Science Association meeting once again with Usman Arshad. I'd like to be able to call you Dr. Arshad, but I guess I can't do that just yet. You're defending in, what, just about a month? Yeah, I will be defending next month, yep. 19th of July. Yeah, defending at the end of that. July at the University of Florida. So, yes. had a storied career there uh, with Dr. Jose Santos. So, welcome back. We did a, uh, uh, a session with you just a little bit ago. Understand you've got a poster that you'll be presenting on uh, Wednesday of this week, and that's titled, Rumen Protected Choline Influences Hepatic Metabolism during induction of fatty liver. So why don't you give me some background in terms of the, uh, the, the, the uh, thesis or hypothesis for that, uh, that uh, poster? Yeah, so uh, previously, Dr. Grummer and his colleagues, they actually induced fatty liver in cows and then they showed that choline acts as a lipotropic agent. But we did not know actually how much choline should be fed to the cows. So uh, then Dr. Charles Staples and colleagues, they conducted another experiment where they had different levels of choline ion, and they observed a linear decrease in the concentration of hepatic triacylglycerol. So still, I would say uh, the exact amount of choline which should be fed is unknown. And another question is whether a source containing low concentration of choline chloride versus high concentration of choline chloride, how it can impact the hepatic metabolism. And the third one, uh, which was the key objective behind this experiment, uh, to uh, elucidate the effects of choline uh, with two different amounts and with two different sources on the hepatic metabolism and lymphatic composition in dairy cows. Okay. And so what's your opinion of using this model to determine relative bioavailability of choline um, in an animal? Well, we can certainly uh, do that, but the only problem is uh, if you infuse choline, it's not that you will infuse choline and then you uh, measure the concentration of choline in blood and then you can take the difference, how much you infused, how much it showed up in the blood. Well, I, in my opinion, choline, it can be uptake by the tissues as well because choline involves synthesis of cell membranes. So we would not know how much choline is going towards intestinal tissues or how much choline is going towards kidneys or hepatic tissues or spleen. So we might underestimate the bioavailability of the cows. 
Very well. I'd like to introduce my co-host, Dr. Ryan Ordway, back once again. Thank you again for joining us, Ryan. I'm a veteran podcaster you now. You are now, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so so this was, a, again, another pretty interesting, uh, groundbreaking study. It, uh, you know, really looking at a variety of different things, as you had mentioned, a couple different uh, prototypes, different levels of product. and. Really, I think the the key difference was, and this one was looking at um, circulating levels of triacylglycerol, triacylglycerol in uh, plasma versus lymph system. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, the idea was, Dr. When Dr. Charles Staple and Marcus they conducted an experiment. So what they did actually, they induce uh, fatty liver by imposing feed restriction. And when you impose feed restriction, meaning that you are not giving enough calories to the cows whatsoever are needed. So this is kind of an intestinal insult. So this intestinal insult leads to the leaky gut. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what they did there, they actually induced fatty liver or provided intestinal insult to the cows. And then they fed them with the source of fat. They fed them with saturated fatty acids because they thought that choline can enhance the integrity of the intestinal cells, so it, it might increase the digestibility of the fat. It might increase the digestibility of nutrients. So we also followed the same concept here, and we replicated the same experiment. And when we fed the cows, we not only looked into the triacylglycerol in the blood, we also collected lymphatic fluid from the supramammary lymphatic vessel of the cows. Interestingly, we found increased concentration of triacylglycerol in the blood and in the lymphatic system as well. So which suggests that choline is might enhancing the digestibility of the nutrients, that's one component. And second, if you feed a dietary source of fat to the cow at the level of intestine, that triacylglycerol is going to be packaged inside the chylomicron. And now chylomicron is another lipoprotein. So. We know that choline can enhance the synthesis of phosphatidylcholine, which is also used for the synthesis of chylomicrons. So probably there is more digestibility of the nutrients, concurrent with increased synthesis of chylomicrons that might be enhancing the absorption of those triacylglycerols. So if this really works, then if you feed choline during the transition period, it might enhance the digestibility of the nutrients. So cow would be able to consume those nutrients in more efficient way than non-supplemented cows. All right, so what does that mean to all the listeners out there? We know how it's impacting the cow. What does it mean for dairy producers, nutritionists, veterinarians? Well, this means the how much efficiency of the nutrients is being utilized by the cow to synthesize the milk, you know. So if you have nutrients, if you have more digestibility of the nutrients, the cow would have more substrates available for the synthesis of milk fat or for the synthesis of milk components. Eventually they're going to increase the fat shield or the or, or, or milk components. That would certainly be good for the productive performance of the cows and obviously for the economics of the dairy herds. So more money, better health. Yep. That's yeah, all. Money, it is. better health. Yeah. You are right. Time. Very nice. Very nice. So what? Uh, you know, again, these studies are so. I mean, the, the the research coming out of Dr. Santos's lab and just continues to be so robust. What? Um, what are some of the other key 
key factors key, or key results that you know you you would like to talk about from this research so well we uh, looked into the uh, different blood metabolites and one of the meta metabolite was haptoglobin and haptoglobin is actually an acute phase response which is kind of a marker for the inflammation so interestingly cows who were fed with choline they had reduced concentrations of haptoglobin meaning that the inflammatory reactions they were less in those cows so uh, if you have less inflammatory response uh, that might also uh, reduce uh, the injury to the hepatocytes and that might also reduce the risk of fatty liver in those cows so it's not only increasing the synthesis of lipoproteins or enhancing the digestibility or enhancing the productive performance it also has less inflammatory response in those cows that might be better to have you know less inflammatory events at the uh, after the onset of calving like retin placenta or mastitis or metritis so choline might have indirect immunomodulatory effect to, uh, to improve the immune function of the cows so this has to be interesting for dr santos because he uh, when he was at the university of california he did some research um, I think it was pub published under the Lima. Yes, Fabio uh, Lima. And, you know, that research showed just general improvements in health, uh, you know, metritis, reductions in ketosis, et cetera, et cetera, but just sort of observational data. So this is, this is really maybe getting to helping understand some of those mechanisms as to what, what was observed in some of his previous research 15 years ago. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you can say that because when they, I think they conducted experiment in 2012. Yes. So uh, they supplemented cows uh, with rumen practice choline, I think, uh, uh, during that transition period, 21 days before calving until 80 days uh, postpartum. And they observed uh, less retained placenta and mastitis, as you said. But later on, a lot of studies have been doing that with the in vitro aspects where they were actually challenging the immune cells, such as neutrophils, uh, with the lipopolysaccharide, which is a LPS. So if you uh, feed choline, so they, they uh, showed that feeding choline can enhance the immune function because there was more uh, oxidative burst, or you can see here there was more uh, 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 the activity of the neutrophils to uh, phagocytize the antigen was more in choline-supplemented cows. So that's how probably choline is enhancing the immune function of those cows. This is uh, pretty, uh, sorry, Scott, I keep interrupting you, but I'm gonna geek out here a little bit on the science side. It's, uh, you know, pretty fascinating because we've, you know, Reassure's been out for 20 plus years, almost 25 years, yeah. I think. And, uh, you know, we've always generally heard in the past, right, animals seem to be healthier yeah, just better not as better. lethargic just generally better and now we're finally able to you know with, with this type of research able to elucidate why why that general you know cows look generally better is is actually happening it's 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 a real yeah. <laughs> real scientific uh, biological process is yeah. going on that's a very good point ryan uh usman as we kind of wrap things up here have any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the audience Yes, so uh, I really hope when I go back to my country, uh, we are a country with uh, almost 2 million dairy cows and 42 million dairy buffaloes we have. And uh, let's just say that country is Pakistan. Right? Yes, so in Pakistan, yeah. yes, exactly. So, but uh, it's, it really surprised me that uh, 
people in our country, they are not familiar with the new concepts of methyl donors feeding, like, you know, choline, methionine, betaine. So certainly I would like to uh, start as an initiative in this area in my country, and I would like to conduct some research on this to gain the confidence of our general public, dairy producers, farmers, and uh, introduce them with modern concepts of balanced dairy ration. So that's the number one thing which I would like to do that. Okay, and have you secured a uh, position yet over there? Yeah, so I'm already a faculty member. I okay. earned an assistantship here, so I am I am going back there. I'm, I would resume a faculty position. At what university? It's the University of Veterinary and Animal Sciences, Lahore. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. I wish you the best of luck. And the next time I see you, I hope I can say uh, Dr. Arshad. Well, I will, you would say that. <laughs> Hello everyone, Scott Sorrell here coming to you from the American Dairy Science Association meetings here in Kansas City. We've been interviewing students, some very bright and talented students, and our, our next one's no exception. Um, a newly minted doctor, Dr. Henry Holdorf from the University of Wisconsin is with us today. Welcome to the Real Science Exchange, Henry. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Very welcome. Henry, we have two posters that we're going to be reviewing today. Would you mind giving us, uh, us an overview of what those posters were about? Yeah, so Scott, we were trying to figure out if increasing the dose of rumen-protected choline prepartum would have impacts on postpartum performance and metabolism in Holstein dairy cows. So we're looking at increasing from the, what the recommended dose is currently to about one and a half times the current recommended dose. Interesting. Yes. So, Henry, can you give us a little detail on the animals used in this study, on the cows? Yeah, so the cows in this experiment were all multiparous, so they're either second or greater lactation. So we're, we're looking at cows who are closer to mature size, less growth going on during lactation. And these cows are producing a pretty high level of milk. Um, a lot of the research that we've looked at previously in rumen protected choline, when we compare it to these cows, they produce about 40% more than the average of those experiments. So a little bit higher producing cows than what's previously been looked at. So 40% more. So we're talking 55, 60 kilograms potentially. Yep, on average during okay. the first 100 days in milk. Okay. Gentlemen, I forgot to introduce my co-host uh, for the session this morning. Got Dr. Jeff Elliott here on my left, and on my right is Dr. Pete Morrow. So, uh, did did it feel did it seem that the uh, larger dose was justified? Did you have better performance in the the higher dose uh, treatments? So no, we were a little bit surprised. I mean, we hypothesized based on the meta analysis of previous research that we would see amplified production responses with the higher dose, but we actually didn't observe differences in energy corrected milk between the high dose and control. However, we did see with that current recommendation, we did see a pretty consistent response in energy corrected milk compared to previous research. What was that difference? It's about two kilograms per day, but from 21 days to 100 days of milk. So actually after we had stopped supplementing choline, it's kind of a carryover effect. So. You know, we generally see that two kilograms, four pound increase, but as you said, those cows were high producing. Did it surprise you that you still saw that amount of increase when the room protected choline was fed at that high level of milk production? I, you know, I don't think it really did. I think when 
when we think about the mechanisms behind choline and the high level of production, so with negative energy balance during the early lactation period, especially when they're producing even more milk, I think we still expected to see benefits, thinking about okay. the mechanisms behind potential effects. Right. I noticed from the uh, study, it appeared that the cows had very high intakes. Do you think these cows were larger than the average cow maybe you'd see in the Midwest or other parts of the country? I think they're pretty typical of Midwest Holstein cows, but probably bigger than, you know, Florida cows, for example. So on that same note, and I had this question for the end, but not from a size standpoint, but body condition. I know it's subjective, but I think you had an average of 3.8 body condition score. To me, in, the, in these days, that's pretty hefty animal going in. We'll see a th sometime 3.2 at Kevin, 3.25. And even though we really haven't talked about the results in nutrient partitioning, I'm really intrigued if you think if they had been 3.25 versus 3.8, would that have affected or would you have seen different changes in that nutrient partitioning? I think with these bigger cows, or bigger or higher body condition score cows were probably more likely to mobilize more body fat in the early lactation period. There's some, some research looking at differences in insulin sensitivity and function between those different body condition score groups. So I, I do think there are probably differences in, in the way that choline impacts those cows, you know, high, higher body condition score cows that are mobilizing more adipose tissue. I will say interesting in this study is that we didn't have a high incidence of subclinical ketosis in these animals. Um, we did have some DA risk, and I think part of that is from the way that those cows are enrolled prepartum. They're in these kaolin, electronic kaolin gates, and so they need to be trained how to use those. And I can't, I'm speculating here, but I wonder if some of those cows maybe don't train as quickly and and some of that can impact their postpartum health. Okay. So feeding off of that, the, you think they're mobilizing a little more body condition or body fat because they're higher body condition. Is that where part of the response on milk fatty acids, the de novo milk fatty acids may have come from? Because I think you saw an increase. Yep. So, so no, actually, that was a little bit surprising. So in early lactation with the rumen protected choline, we actually saw new... Uh, a small increase in circulating fatty acids, right? But we also saw those increases in de novo milk fatty acids, which we would kind of expect the inverse. So with the increases in circulating fatty acids, we, we would think you'd see increases in preformed fatty acids, but it actually seemed to be an improvement in milk fatty acids produced within the mammary gland, driving impacts mm. on milk fats. Now that'd be an indication to possibly improve rumen health. Could be, could be. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I think that's um, an area that deserves some more exploration. If rumen protected choline is impacting mammary gland function, if there's something going on there, or if it's like you're saying, an impact on rumen health and supply of nutrients important for milk fatty acids. I mean, that's a lot of speculation, but I think it's especially considering the carryover effects that we're seeing after we stop supplementing choline, that it's an area that deserves some exploration. Did the supplemented cows have better uh, dry matter intake prepartum? No, uh, 
that was actually probably one of the most striking and surprising impacts of this study is we actually saw a reduction in prepartum dry matter intake with those recommended feeding rates of room protected colon compared to control. Um, but I'm curious about the blood urea nitrogen. I think you saw lower levels. Do you think that just occurred? Do you think there's an association? What does that mean? Yeah, that's uh, so. So one of the limitations of this study is that we didn't have postpartum dry matter intake. So we got to be careful when we think about our, our MUNs, our milk urea nitrogen and blood urea nitrogen in terms of what it really means. I think we need to understand what the protein supply was when we think about those effects, but a little bit of speculation here. We're interested in nitrogen efficiency and environmental impacts. And I think the reason that we're interested in those blood urea nitrogen is as cows are you know, negative energy balance and negative protein balance in early lactation, if we can affect protein turnover, say in muscle tissue and um, I think it, I, I don't want to make too much of it because yeah. we don't have that postpartum dry matter intake data, but I think it's an area that's of interest and should be focused on. Okay, thanks. All right, gentlemen, this has been a very interesting discussion. If you'd like to see um, Henry's posters, we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, Henry, why don't you just wrap it up for us, put a bow on it, and, and talk about maybe what the practical implications of the research uh, is. Yeah, so... I think really what this experiment tells us is that the current recommended feeding rates of room protected choline are probably sufficient in the prepartum period. And I think the other interesting thing is that, and this is something that we didn't mention, but we actually mix the treatments into the TMR, so it's not a top dress experiment like a lot of them have been. So this is a little bit more consistent with how choline's fed in the industry. I think that's an important part of this experiment. Very well. And then finally, just got your uh, PhD. What's next for Henry? So I'll be a dairy consultant with Purine Animal Nutrition working out of Madison, Wisconsin. Excellent. They're getting a good young man. So thank you. Sam. Wish you the best of luck. Hello, everyone. We're here at the ADSA meetings with Dr. Henry Holdorf from the University of Wisconsin, soon to be Purina Mills. Henry, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Thanks, Scott. Now, I understand that you uh, presented a, uh, a poster this morning, um, and the title of which was The Effects of In Utero Exposure on Growth and Feed Efficiency in Holstein Dairy Calves. Um, how'd that go uh, this morning? Did you get a lot of tough questions? You know, it was a little slow early in the morning, but it picked up as the morning went on. Um, pretty good interest in the, in the poster. Yeah. Why don't you give us an overview of uh, the poster, the data that was presented today, and some of the key findings? Yeah, so what we did is fed prepartum cows rumen protected choline, and we were interested in potential in utero effects on early life growth and feed efficiency. And what we saw was during the first two weeks of life that the higher dose that we fed tended to increase average daily gain and feed efficiency compared to control. Do you think these uh, higher daily gains would um also it help with uh, disease problems in early life? So I, that, that's, an important, uh, that's an important perspective about this experiment. Um, in these Holstein calves, we actually had a pretty high incidence of abomasal bloat. And that abomasal bloat was mostly during the first two weeks where we saw those improvements in average daily gain and feed efficiency. Um, 
we're thinking that it it may be where where choline can help during those uh, those gastrointestinal insults. That it may be part of the story that it's helping during those. Okay, thanks, gentlemen. I forgot to introduce my co-host uh, for the session this morning. Got Dr. Jeff Elliott here on my left, and on my right is Dr. Pete Morrow. I. I see uh, part of the study was that uh, a linear response to choline ion intake. Can you explain how the cows were fed to so we could get that type of measure? Yeah, that's a good question. So most of the research in rumen protected choline has been with top dress. So you're specifically targeting an amount of choline. The way we did it in this experiment is we want to be a little bit more consistent with how choline is fed in the industry. And so we mixed it into the TMR. And what that means is that the actual amount of choline that was consumed by the cow depends on her dry matter intake. And so what happened is we actually had a range of choline intakes from about six grams up to 24 grams per day. So I wanna go back to your point on choline potentially improving gut health. Where, where do you think that's coming from? Is it, is it improvement in the, in the gut lining Absorption, expand on that. I think, I think that we need quite a bit more research to answer that question. Um, if I can speculate a little bit about a potential mechanism, choline's important for uh, neurotransmitting in the brain and gut development. So this, and this is a speculation that uh, if, we like speculation. <laughs> If we have any sort of, you know, deficiency in, in choline in these developing calves, and this is really coming from some rodent literature, where they prevent them from uh, converting choline into acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter. And what they see is poorer gastrointestinal development. And so obviously we don't have an, a, you know, an aggressive deficiency like that likely in these calves. But that's kind of where my line of thinking going is, can we, can we impact that with in utero choline supplementation? So based on that speculation then, are you thinking it's more of an in utero effect versus an, a colostrum effect? I think based on that mechanism, it would be more of an in utero effect. Okay. But certainly the colostrum has a big impact on gut function. And so I, that's likely part of the story as well. I'm not sure if choline would impact that or not. Is there any way to separate the, you know, essentially the, the calf's volume or amount of, of choline in their system versus the epigenetic effect uh, to determine what the actual cause of the differences are? That's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure that we can separate that out in this experiment. Um, we did look at a, a very high level look at DNA methylation in this experiment, and we didn't detect differences in global methylation patterns. That's not to say that there's not differences, uh, or th that there couldn't be differences in tissue or gene specific, but that's a, that's a deeper question that would need to be asked. Thanks. Henry, would you just share with us a couple of your key takeaways from the, the uh, trial and then What's the next line of question for this, uh, this kind of research? So I think the key takeaway from this experiment is that there's potential additional benefits beyond what's been established for cows, postpartum cows, so these cows. I think it's, in, it's an important area if we can impact 
vulnerable young animals and potentially help them during disease insults. I think that's an important area and, and more questions, you know, we need more research on this area. These are just a few studies, but but I think that's an important takeaway. Is there any planned research at Wisconsin right now? I I don't think we have anything anything on the docket yet. Well, he's not worried about it. He's leaving. He's leaving. <laughs> he's going to uh, Purina Mills. And uh, Henry, thank you for joining us today. And we wish you all the best in your uh, career. Thank you, Scott. Hello, everyone. Scott Sorrell coming to you from the ADSA meetings here in Kansas City. With me today is two distinguished uh, gentlemen from the University of Wisconsin. First, Dr. Billy Brown. Uh, he's a postdoc at University of Wisconsin, but he's uh, recently taking uh, a, a post at Kansas State. Yeah. Yep. Welcome. And Dr. Henry Hodorf, uh, which is, um, he's a newly minted doctor. And after, uh, I don't know when, but soon, he's gonna be going on to a new career with Karina Mills. So gentlemen, welcome. Appreciate uh, you coming by today. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here. And what we're gonna do here is we're gonna be reviewing uh, one oral presentation by Henry and a poster, a related poster uh, that Billy did, uh, the titles of which are Increasing Dose of Postpartum Rumen-Protected Choline and the Effects of In Utero Exposure on Angus Holstein Beef Calves, and then uh, one on the effects of in utero, in utero choline exposure on growth and metabolism in weaned Angus and Holstein calves. All right, who would like to start? I'd like somebody to give me an overview of, uh, I'm gonna start with your, yeah, give us an overview of the uh, presentation. Yeah, I can take that, Scott. So what we were doing was increasing the dose of prepartum ruin protected choline. So we had a zero, a control, we had our 15 grams, and then about one and a half times, 22 grams. So we're trying to see if, if we feed more rumen protected choline, would we increase some of the established effects on postpartum cows? And we leveraged part of that transition cow experiment to look at potential in utero effects in calves. Uh, some of those calves were Holstein by Angus calves, so it's it's adult cows that are bred with, with Angus semen. And so what we're trying to figure out is if there are any in utero effects on early life growth and feed efficiency in those calves. And so we, we treated all those animals similarly after growth, so the only difference in, in what they're exposed to is that in utero choline treatment. Very well. And Billy, can you tell us about your poster? Yeah, absolutely. We, we actually took what Henry did and we did an extension of that. We had some really nice funding through the Dairy Innovation Hub at Wisconsin. And uh, we, we had seen in some previous literature that had sparked a lot of what Henry was looking at that uh, in utero choline could uh, increase average daily gain and growth through about 50 weeks of age in Holstein heifers. And so uh, our, our beef facilities are maybe a little underutilized and we say, hey, we have a really cool opportunity here to leverage some of those things and, and follow them for a longer period of time. So we took monthly measurements of these beef uh, or Angus Holstein crosses that Henry uh, had produced in, in that project and weighed them monthly uh, to get good, uh, good weights on them and repeatable weights that we could uh, analyze over a period of time. So we made weigh them monthly through nine months of age. And then we put them on a feed efficiency study. And um, while they were on a finishing diet, we transitioned them to a finishing diet at about eight or nine months of age. 
and uh, we're able to look at the feed efficiency of them and, and their blood metabolites to see uh, what some of those uh, variables were looking like, like if there was uh, any any response there. And, and so uh, then the next stage is, uh, we're not quite done with that yet, is going all the way out to the finishing phase and, and the slaughter phase and looking at carcass composition. So the first cohort has gone to harvest and we have those results and then the second cohort will go soon. and. And so we're excited to see what this is. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. My co-host for the session is Dr. Glenn Ains, Technical Service Manager for Balchem Corporation. Uh, Glenn, do you have any questions? One ask about you know the uniqueness of how you actually fed reassure in this particular study, right? Yeah. So those dams. Yeah. So most of the research in rumen protected choline has been with top dress experiments, where you can target a specific amount of choline for each cow. But the way that we did it is we were trying to mimic how choline is really fed in the industry and we mixed it into the TMR. And what this means is that the amount of choline that was actually consumed by the cow is dependent on her dry matter intake. So what ended up happening is we have a range in average daily choline intakes from about six to 24 grams per day. Right, and you can, you can actually lay that out and show linear responses in terms of your data. Yeah, so we, we measured prepartum dry matter intake and from that we could calculate actual choline intakes, and we attempted to use that continuous data as an explanatory variable in some of our responses like average daily gain and feed efficiency. So can you explain how that data can be used or, or to interpret the results? Yeah, so we actually observed that in the male Holstein Biangus calves, we had improved rates of gain from three to eight weeks of age, and it actually responded in a linear fashion. So the more choline that, her mo that, that calves his mother ate, the greater that average daily gain rate was for three-day weeks. Yeah, that's interesting because you said the male calves, but not the female calves. Right. We did not observe effects on average daily gain in those females. Any idea why that would be the case? You know, I'd have to speculate a little bit here because sure. beef genetics aren't my expertise. But <laughs> when we think about males and females, and I think it probably has something to do with biological priorities. I wonder if those males are putting energy towards growth and maybe females are 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 more prioritized with reproduction that's that's me speculating a little bit sure yeah because we've seen that you know that effect of of adding reassure in dams diets actually having a, a prolonged effect on effort growth all the way out to to calving um, so we've seen that benefit at least on the dairy side right right and I wonder if in those dairy heifers you know, we've bred them for stature and milk production, and they seem, you know, to have that genetic drive to grow big. And so I wonder if there's some similarities between genetic priorities between the female Holstein replacements and the male Angus, uh, Angus cross calves. So then after we, we get them weaned, Billy, you, you saw what? What happened uh, after that? Uh, again, we had the unique opportunity to weigh these animals uh, on a regular basis, a monthly basis. and. Uh, our take home message for that, that there was a tendency uh, for uh, increasing in utero choline dose to uh, increase body weight, hip height, and uh, wither height as well. So there seems to be a little bit of a growth response there, um, which is really interesting. There, there had been previous works e even looking at uh, in utero uh, bone length uh, effects from feeding choline on a, a very small study in sheep. And uh, that showed some similar 
uh, femur length increases. And so it seems like that's carrying over in, in these calves as well. It's just, just some added growth. And I think that's exciting from the standpoint of a, a dairy farmer that's producing Angus and Holstein cross calves. You know, you want a, a way to be able to add value to those calves uh, immediately right out of the gate because you're selling them on total pounds if you retain ownership of that. And so um, that that's a unique thing that I think probably that's an opportunity to span beyond just the dairy industry into other species as well and, and being able to add value pretty easily. Yeah. And there's a lot of, lot of dairy cows being bred back to, to Angus exactly. these days. So can you ballpark the, the, the difference in growth? Yeah, so it, it was averaged over that period of time. I think uh, what we looked at yesterday was maybe a, a, a 30 pound difference. Uh, from the control group to the highest uh, dose of choline, which is the 22 grams, uh, I think. So that that is pretty significant. Uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll be excited to kind of reveal uh, later when we take these last group to harvest if, if that uh, held over in the long run. But, you know, if folks are selling calves off the farm, they feed them for a while too, I, I think there's an opportunity, you know, even if it's not in the final finishing phase for folks to garner some, some uh, dollars there. That's pretty fascinating that you can get a response eight, 10 months down the road in an animal when the dam was just fed something for a few weeks. And, uh, and to me, that's a whole part of this uh, developmental programming area that's becoming a bigger and bigger uh, area of emphasis in animal science research right now. And I think we're gonna be seeing a lot more of those things of, of uh, what the, the dam effects are on the offspring. And in the dairy industry, we have the perfect model to be able to evaluate that uh, because con contrary to beef or swine or something like that, where the offspring stays on the dam while they're uh, nursing, you're still having dam effects at that point uh, mm -hmm. for, for postpartum effects, milk production or whatever. We can isolate that in the dairy industry and, and see. hopefully we can do some really cool things to understand. Yeah. That, that area of epigenomics is, is really quite fascinating. Yeah. Gentlemen, you're both going to be departing University of Wisconsin here uh, shortly and so you're not going to be continuing this research. What kind of advice would you give Dr. Heather White for the next step in this kind of research? Well, for me, I'll go ahead and jump in um, for this. I, I think there's an opportunity to uh, to look at why we're we're experiencing some of these growth changes that we have observed, and and that goes for anybody, not just Dr. White as well. You know, trying to understand mechanistically what's going on, and, and that's the hard part, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so that requires taking some more tissue samples and understanding some gene expression in different areas. Um, and it will really require some uh, deeper work than the superficial thing that everybody's doing at this point, just trying to figure out if there is a global effect. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that's looking at metabolism. I think it's looking at brain development, gut development, all of those things. If you look at the literature from the rodents and mice, you see some subtle effects there. And I think it's probably carrying over the dairy cattle as well. Yeah. Billy summed it up pretty well. Yeah. All right, very well. Uh, Dr. Brown, Dr. Holdorf, thank you for joining us today. I wish you guys the best of luck in your new careers. Thank you. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for having us, Scott. Welcome back, everyone, to the Real Science Exchange. We're back here with our uh, next session. Um, once again, we have Dr. Uh, Turner Schwartz from Michigan State University, and my co-host today is Marco Zanobi. Marcos, I uh, didn't have a chance last time to talk to you a little bit, uh, but tell us a little more about what you're doing for Balchem there in South America and what's some of the key activities you're you're working on. Okay, um, basically I'm, what I'm doing is technical support for our clients in Mexico, Chile, Peru, and Argentina. 
uh, basically troubleshooting problem in transition cows and we try to uh, be a source of information for them. So that's why we focus. All right, mainly. yeah, thank you, Marcos. And Turner, this time we're reviewing uh, an oral presentation that you did. The um, title was Effects of Dietary Rumen Protected Choline Supplementation During an Intramammary uh, Lipopolysaccharide Challenge in Periparturient Dairy Cattle. Another long one. Yeah, got to get all the words in. <laughs> Very well. Sometimes I wonder after these, uh, you know, titles if you really need to uh, write a paper. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't be making fun of this uh, PhD guy. Anyway, uh, tell us a little bit about the paper and how did you conceive of this? Um, yeah, so there's quite a bit of research out there to show that if you supplement choline during that transition period, um, you can improve milk production. And we kind of speculated or hypothesized that one of the reasons why choline supplementation was increasing milk yield was due to reducing inflammation. Yeah. Um, so we were trying to look at how choline could improve health. So we induced inflammation using an intramammary lipopolysaccharide challenge, which would mimic, uh, it would mimic an E. coli infection. It's similar to an E. coli mastitis. Uh, but it, it's not a live challenge, it's just a, a, a LPS challenge. So we were inducing inflammation and measuring responses to that, hoping that choline would attenuate inflammation and improve milk yield responses. Yeah, you know, I've often wondered with these LPS challenges, how different is that from a, you know, a pathogen infection? What, how would that uh, present itself differently? Uh, so there's definitely some differences there. The, the pathogen E. coli is quite a difficult challenge to, to do. And so LPS is more of a short-term response. Um, you, you, cows get sick for about a day, but then they recover. Um, and because we were doing this challenging early lactation cows, we didn't want to crash them too much. So we, did, we chose the LPS over the E. coli. Um, the LPS challenges are a really nice model that is very consistent to replicate to induce inflammation. So it gives us a nice standard model for inducing inflammation. We'll see some differences in responses between cows, but they're pretty similar. So could you tell us a little bit more about the result that you... Sure. So we supplemented choline at two different doses, uh, 30 grams or 45 grams per day, or we had our control group throughout the transition period, starting about three weeks prior to three weeks after calving. Uh, we saw about a three and a half kilogram increase in milk yield through the through the first 16 days of lactation. On day 17, we did the LPS challenge. So this now goes from three treatment groups into six because we had unchallenged cows and challenged cows within each treatment group. Um, we didn't quite see, we had a, a statistical trend uh, during the challenge. We didn't quite see an increase in milk yield response. But when we got to that carryover effect, so 22 through 84 days in milk, we still saw that choline increased milk yield by about three kilograms per cow per day um, through that time period. And we also saw that the LPS was reducing milk yield through all the way through 84 days in milk. What was the p-value on that milk production? Uh, it was pretty low. I don't remember the exact p-value, but it was highly significant. Okay. Yeah. So for the audience, uh, what do you mean with carryover? So the audience can yeah. have a better picture of that. Yeah, so we stopped supplementing choline at 21 days postpartum. So when I mean carryover is, is the effect that's carrying over into the rest of lactation when we're no longer supplementing choline. The good thing is that we are repeating this result, or you're, you are repeating these re results, right? Florida already showed this, the carryover effect, so, yeah. which is pretty profound. I mean, really nice result for, for the nutrients. So that's a, I'm, I'm happy for, the, for that. So, 
Another good thing, do you remember how much milk you lose by, do, by doing this LPS challenge? And what are the implications maybe for the producers? Sure. So the LPS challenge on the day of challenge, you are not quite cut milk production in half or close to half. Uh, in the days that carry over, it's more like a two, three kilogram loss per cow per day uh, through the rest of 84 days in milk. So it's got a nice long carryover effect, probably because you're killing some of the mammary epithelial cells likely. Does this have a long-term effect on the cows, the LPS challenge? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Even and even the choline does too. In fact, the choline response was larger than the LPS response. The choline was increasing three kilograms per cow. Um, per day, whereas the LPS was reducing by two kilograms. Okay, so. nice. Interesting. So what about dry matter intake, feed efficiency, because it's really sure. important these, uh, these times, right? So Yeah, so we, uh, we measured dry matter intake through the first 21 days postpartum. We did not see a treatment effect on dry matter intake. We also did not see any treatment effects on body condition score or on NIFA, non-esterified fatty acid concentrations. And, and for me, that all kind of says these cows were producing more milk, but they weren't necessarily doing it off the backs of their own bodies, right? They were more efficient, converting feed more efficiently into milk um, without exacerbating negative energy balance. Well, the next logical question would be, do you have any hypothesis for the mode of action? Uh, I don't necessarily have any. It could be related to methylation. It could be related to mitochondrial function, uh, improving the ability to oxidize fat, produce energy. Um, but I don't necessarily have a, have a direct mechanism. I think there's lots of areas where you could explore. That's one thing that's kind of interesting about choline is there's so many different ways you can go with this product. <laughs> right. I was going to ask a, a follow-up question related to, so obviously we've got some more research to do. Um, understand you're graduating, uh, be moving on. Do you, do you have someone that you're passing the, the baton to? Uh, well, Barry's lab is always growing, so I, I don't know if I'm passing the baton on to anybody, um, but his, his lab is constantly growing, so I, I'm sure there will be other people to pick up the nutritional immunology work and, and continue working yeah. in that area. Outstanding. Can you talk just a little bit uh, in closing about what you see as some of the practical implications of uh, the research and the findings from this uh, research? Yeah, so certainly um, choline can enhance milk production, improve feed efficiency, so that's definitely a practical application for dairy farmers. Um, I think it's important to remember that it's not just increasing milk yield when you're supplementing it, but it's increasing milk yield beyond that. So from a feed cost standpoint, that's quite beneficial, right? Because you're only feeding it for six weeks, but you're still seeing a milk yield response that carries well beyond that. Can you tell us what was the average milk production for these cows? Uh, Rough, I mean. I don't remember exactly, but it, they would have peaked out probably close to 50 kilograms per cow per day. Yep. So I'd have to look at the High data. producing dairy yes, cows. Yes, they were high producing multi-paris cows. Yeah, but that's a great question, Marcos. You know, early on when uh, Coley first uh, entered the market, people were using it as, you know, to help with transition cows, you know, cows that had problems or fat cows or fatty liver. And I think we're finding that choline is, in fact, um, not just a, a, a problem cow uh, nutrient. Um, can you speak to that? Or what did you see uh, re related to cows that had problems, didn't have problems, low-producing cows versus high-producing cows? Yeah, so we looked for interactions like that. We, we tested treatment by body condition score interactions to kind of figure out 
you know, were those fat cows that were at more risk for disease, were they benefiting from the choline more so than a cow that wasn't fat? Um, and that was never significant. In fact, there was never any indication that the choline was only working in certain cows. It seemed to be benefiting all cows. Similar result in Florida, right? That's what you saw uh, in Florida as well. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Good. Yeah. Great. Great. Turner, thanks again for joining us here at the ADSA at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash realscience to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars. Thank you.